0: Well, good morning, welcome. My name's Kirkwood. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting today, particular welcome to you. Uh, We're happy that you're with us today. We're happy you've chosen to worship here. If this is your first Sunday here, if you're new to Southridge, if there's anything we can do to help you learn more about us as a church, to help you connect, we would like to do that. And so feel free to see me after the service. You can see one of our guest services team at the welcome desk in the foyer. Uh, You can contact us. Our information is in the program. You can contact the office. If there's something we can help you do to help you connect and learn about us, we'd like to do that. Uh, If it is your first Sunday, we're in the middle of a sermon series. This is uh, the third part of a sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so if you would like to see where we've been recently, if you'd like to see previous messages in the series, you can find those on our website. It'll show you on the screen here behind me. Uh, There is a messages tab. You can click on messages and it'll take you to the sermon archive. You can find those earlier messages in this series. You can also go back and look and see other speakers, other people who share from our stage. Uh, We have our popular Taboo series. I think it's our fourth year doing that coming up this year. And so Taboo has been very popular for us as a church as we look to tackle, biblically tackle difficult subjects, things in our culture that are happening in the world and what the Bible has to say about those and how we can honor God in those. And so that's there for you as well. I'd invite you to to check it out. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, so if you have a device and you wanna open it to there, or your Bible, if you prefer to read along, it'll also be on the screen for you. What I wanna suggest to you today is a concept, a strategy for what some people call missional living. If you've been in church for a while, or if you've been around Christians for any length of time, then you've likely heard about and you're familiar with missions and short term mission trips. Maybe you've even been on a short term mission trip or a long term one uh, yourself. Our church participates in missions. Uh, In fact, Pastor Brent today is in Colombia with David Harita and uh, some others from our fellowship, uh, serving alongside one of our missionaries in Colombia, Diego and Claudia Cardona. Uh, We have a team that just returned from Haiti from a short-term trip there with our agency partner, Starfish Ministries. And we have a team going out Saturday, a team that I'm actually privileged to be a part of. We're headed to the Baja Peninsula of California, of Mexico Uh, And so our church is actively involved in missions. Missions, you might say, are integral in churches, in mainstream Christian churches, but missions are also this. Missions are also used by non-Christian faith groups. Did you know that? Other faith groups have missions and missions opportunities. Well, what I want to talk to you about today is not missions in the context of going to another country or even serving cross-culturally within Canada. While those are good, and I do believe that God works on the mission field uh, here cross-culturally and abroad, I also believe that missions are accessible in every facet of life, every day. And I believe that as Christians, if we are Christians, that we are called, therefore, to be missionaries, to live missionally. Being a missionary is a topic that is very personal to me, and I will tell you why uh, in a few minutes, although I, I do often fall short. I often think about only myself. Um, I have tried to orient my life and my living around the guiding principle of living missionally and modeling Christ-like behavior in my relationships, in my hobbies, in my parenting, and in my relationship with Kim. And like I said, I often fall short. It would sometimes be hard to tell what was going on in my head if I could say I was really living Christ-like in those moments. Now, without the Holy Spirit, and the power of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's impossible, but I do believe it's possible for us to live missionally, to live Christ-like lives that honor God. And I, like I said, I believe it's the calling for every Christian. Before I go further... I wanna share a story with you. Uh, I've shared parts of my coming to faith story from the platform here before. You, some of you have heard me talk about that. I wanna go back a little bit further though in terms of, of my coming to faith story and how it began for me. Uh, as, a, as a kid, as a child growing up, I grew up in a small town in Southern Ontario, a place called Stratford, Ontario. As a child, I was sent to church. I wasn't so much taken to church by my parents, but my parents made sure that my sister and I got to church every Sunday. And my church was St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. It's still there. They ran a bus ministry. Do you know what a bus ministry is? Some of you? Uh, I, I, as a kid, the, the, our church maintenance supervisor and the, and the bus driver, Mr. Palmer, he would, he would work this route in a, in a small bus and he would pick up kids who couldn't otherwise get to church. And so every Sunday he would pick my sister and I up at the end of our driveway and he'd work the route and he'd pick up a half a dozen or so, maybe 10 other kids, and he would take us to church and we would go to kids' church. And we'd go upstairs, and we'd listen to Mr. Hayter, the Sunday school superintendent. He would, he would teach us about Jesus and the stories in the Bible. We'd learn to memorize Scripture verses. We'd have kind of like big group session, kind of like we do here at Southridge, and then we would dismiss into our age-appropriate groups, and we'd go and spend time with a leader who told us Bible stories. That was every Sunday for me. After kids' church, we'd go downstairs to big church. Welcome to big church. And... A lot of us even sang in the kids' choir. Uh, My mom would come to big church fairly regularly, like once a month. My dad would come at Christmas and Easter time. Um, And as good as kids' church was, as much as I enjoyed going, and as much as I needed the gospel in my life, faith did not really take hold with me at that time. But it did lay some important groundwork. Around 15 years old, I started drifting out of church. I started being more interested in the things my friends were doing on Sunday. And, and by 16, I was living an almost completely secular life. And uh, in, that lasted into my early 20s. In Easter, at Easter of 1995, I was attending University of Ottawa. My sister... Uh, had become a Christian in high school. I had gone off to university two years before, didn't really know what was going on in her life. And she came out here to Langley to attend Trinity Western University. I had reading break and she asked me if I wanted to come out and spend a week out here. And I didn't really have any interest in being around Christians for a week at a uni- Bible University, um, but I came. And uh, I won't say that I came to faith that week, I would not say that. I did not come to faith in Christ that week. But I tell people this, that Trinity is the place where God woke me up. Previous to that, I believed that there was somehow a creator involved in the establishment of the universe and the creation of people and animals. I believed that it had to have come from somewhere, but I did not believe that God was who he said he was. I did not believe that Jesus was God. But I did believe from that time at Trinity on that God woke me up. I wasn't prepared to accept Jesus uh, at that time, but something was going on in my life and I couldn't really argue it. Then the following summer, I finished university. I, I, went to, I moved to uh, a small town in Southern Saskatchewan, a place called Moose Jaw. I started working as an on-ice official in the Western Hockey League. And so I was living there. While I was living there, I met a police officer who got me involved. He knew that I wanted to be a police officer someday. Can you imagine that? And he, um, I'd be a terrible cop. Uh, he, he got me... <laughs> You'd all have speeding tickets before you got out of the parking lot. Uh, I, I, you would, it's true. Um, legalistic. You're going 52 in a 50. Um, anyway, he, he befriended me and he knew that I wanted to be a police officer. So he got me involved in the unit that he led, which was the victim services unit. And we helped provide people of, victims of crime and people who'd been stuffed with relief. And it, it fit with me and I enjoyed it. And he began to befriend me. And he was a Christian and I didn't necessarily know it at the beginning. But then he started inviting me to... Church. Didn't have any serious interest in going to church really, but I liked him. Uh, One Easter, he invited me to come to church with his family and then to have Easter dinner at their home. And that was the first time I went. And after that time, there were other men in the church who started reaching out to me in sort of an organic way. It wasn't contrived. It wasn't orchestrated. Doug wasn't behind it all. And I met lots of nice people in that church. Lots now, none of them really cornered me directly with the gospel and presented the gospel to me. If they had, I would have refuted and argued with them at that point because like I said, even though God woke me up at Trinity, I wasn't prepared to accept my need for a savior and pray to receive Christ. I was not. I believe he existed, but I wasn't there yet. So what happened was it was, it was through these sort of what I call ice-breaking encounters with Christians, with church people inviting me to their home, to men's ministry events, out to eat after church, that I started noticing that there was something different about them. I'm not saying they were all different because like in every church, there are people who at that time like me were churchgoers, but not true believers in Jesus. But the folks I saw reflected something different. Charles Spurgeon wrote, he said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Well, most of the people I knew in that church were true believers. They were Christian missionaries whose behavior and way of living spurred my curiosity. And I started to read, and to try to reconcile what I believed and why. But as I watched I I saw how these people handled issues. I saw how they faced sickness. I saw how they dealt with tragedy. I watched how they resolved uh, conflicts. I watched Doug, how he managed conflict as a police officer and it was very different than anything I had ever seen before. And I watched how they hoped and and how they worshiped and how they expressed their hope and their faith in Jesus by how they lived their lives and how they shared their lives with each other, but also with me, a newcomer, in a way that I had not experienced before. They had no good reason to reach out to me. I was a linesman in the Western Hockey League living two days from home. There's no real good reason to reach out to me other than they were motivated by what they believed. And so my early presumption led me to believe this. It led me to believe that they were different. They were acting this way toward me, behaving this way towards me because they attended church. And so I was curious. And so I started to attend church more regularly, curious to see if it would have the same type of an impact on me as I continued to search for God and for meaning in my life. This led me to study the Bible. I've told some of you before that my sister gave me a Bible when I stood in her wedding. That was uh, in 1995. I started reading the Bible because I was curious. Like, okay, these people go to church, they talk about the Bible, they're kind, they're nice. There's got to be some connection here. This is literally the conversation going on in my brain because I'm an analytical weirdo like that. Um, And so here's the thing. Even though I was studying the Bible, I was reading the Bible, and I was attending church and I was being influenced by my police officer friend and the influence of other people who, you know, I suddenly realized there were Christians all around me. I worked for the Royal Bank during the day and, and, and there were Christian people all around me. And it was the most bizarre, surreal experience I've ever had because prior to this, prior to this time in my life in southern Saskatchewan, I did not have Christians in my life everywhere. And then in January of 1997, I crossed the line, so to speak. I came to faith in Christ. I had arrived at the place where I believed that I knew that Jesus was the Son of God and He is, and I stand in that conviction today. And I crossed over and I accepted Christ as my Savior. The reason I share that story with you this morning is so that you understand it was, it was not attending church that made the difference in these people's lives. It helped. Don't want to give you a hall pass to not go to church anymore. It was the example of of what they were living in front of me that attracted me to church. It was the Christ-likeness that I saw in some of them that led me to study the Bible and to eventually accept Christ. But it wasn't church only. See, here's the thing. What it was, actually, was the power and the presence of a holy God and the Holy Spirit working in and through people. It was the Holy Spirit living inside of people who believed that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's the thing that made the difference. That's why they were different. Church maybe reinforces that for them. Church is a place where they fellowship together, where they worship God, but it was the presence of God in them as believing people that actually made the difference. And so if you are in a place today where you are considering faith, if you're me in 1995 in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, 1996, in a little church, and, and you're considering faith, here's my hope for you. My hope is that as you look at the Christians around you, the people who perhaps invited you here today, who your life intersects with regularly, my hope is that as you examine our lives, you see the Holy Spirit working in and through us and that you understand that the motivation is not so we can check some box and say, I invited a friend to church today. It's because we believe that God sent his son to live and suffer and die and be raised for us so that we would have life. So my hope is you see that in how we live you're gonna see our flaws too. That's the the nature of doing life with real people. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, then I would say this to you. I would say that other people are watching us. They're watching how we respond. They're watching how we react. They're listening to how we feel about things and how we process those things. They're watching how we manage grief and disappointment and anger. They're watching how we parent. And sometimes what they see maybe isn't the most Christ-like example, if you're like me but they're watching our lives. And so my prayer for you, if you're a Christian, is that the example you live out among people who are seeking and searching would be one that would draw them toward faith and not turn them off of pursuing God further. Now, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And here we find the Apostle Paul. He's with some friends. He's with Silas and Timothy and some others. And they're doing ministry in a place called Thessalonica. And to give you just a little bit of the background of where we've been the last couple weeks, before we dive in here, we know that the gospel, Paul says that the gospel they are preaching to the Thessalonian church, that he says it's not one with self-serving motives. We're not preaching this gospel to you to benefit ourselves. He says that he and Timothy and Silas, that they are approved by God to share his good news and that that's why they're there. They're not, we're not here to people please. We're not here to gain our own uh, rewards. We're not here to get wealthy. We're not here to establish ourselves. We're here to preach the gospel and to tell about the good news of Jesus. And in the second half of verse six, we'll pick up there, it says this. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We love you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. So, Paul tells the church, What I'm going to preach to you is important, and you need to hear it. But he says, it's, I'm not just preaching so you hear it. We actually love you, we care about you, we enjoy doing life with you. You're, we're telling you this because we believe it's true, but also because we love you so deeply. What I find interesting at the beginning of verse six is when he says that they could have been a burden to the Thessalonians. We could have been a burden to you. And here's the thing, he and his group, his, his group of, of disciples, they, they could have expected more from the Thessalonians. They could have demanded greater honor. They knew they were apostles, sent, chosen and sent by God. And so they could have come in with some air of superiority and demanded more. They could have said, you should respect us. You should listen to us. But they chose to remain focused on Christ and his message. They chose to be servants. They chose to set aside any desire for personal gain and profit. In fact, they even denied themselves the liberty the right privilege of taking wages out of the church because even at that time, as, as preachers of the gospel, they had a right to be remunerated and yet they set that aside and they said no. Now, granted the cost of living and working in Thessalonica was probably a little different than it is living and working in the lower mainland, but although Paul and his coworkers weren't, they're not living in that type of a world where they were setting down roots and staying permanently, they weren't. They were traveling missionaries, they were there for a time until God brought their work to a close and he took them somewhere else. So they weren't buying houses and setting down roots and establishing families, but they still had a right to expect compensation in some way. And yet they chose not to. Why? Because they believed that Christ's message of salvation and the presence of the Holy Spirit would change everything for the Thessalonians. And it did. In fact, the reason we're here today is because this group of apostles and teachers went to places like Thessalonica and preached the gospel. And I know, you know, you maybe would say, my family, we've been believers for generations. We have a legacy of faith and that's true and praise God for that. But I would say this, every legacy of faith has its origins. Can you see how the faithful work of men like Paul, Silas, Timothy and others is the beginning point for a legacy of faith? And if so, what does that mean for us who who come to faith in our mid twenties? What does it mean for us to have a legacy of faith for the future for those who would believe because of how the Holy Spirit has worked in us, I ask just so that you'll consider. Now, as we we know that Paul and, and this group of missionaries, we know that they are they are actually the guests in Thessalonica. They've been asked to stay. They've been invited to come and to stay, but. The interesting thing about this passage is it, it touches on the concept of hospitality in another way. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to read into the text here, but if, uh, notice that the, the hospitality of the Thessalonians is reciprocated by Paul and his group in that in this way. They, they didn't ask for wages. They were, Paul and his group, they chose to be hospitable, generous. No, no, we don't want your money. We simply appreciate the ability to stand and preach the good news to you, and to do life with you, because we love you. They were hospitable, generous. In verse eight, it tells us that the, uh, they invited the Thessalonians into this personal relationship, and it shows that they were also, by doing so, they were also hospitable, welcoming. It wasn't just come and preach to the heathens and then leave. It was come and preach to those who do not yet know the Lord and love them in His name and do life together. They were hospitable, welcoming. Now, I would argue that decisions like that created an atmosphere that allowed them to then share the gospel uninhibited by anything to do with money and uninhibited by any relationship tension and strain because it was established first, we're here to preach the good news because we love you. Think about your own relationships with people. I, when I write, I often ask myself questions. How does this relate to me? Where is this active and valid in my life? And where am I not perhaps giving it enough attention? And so I ask myself questions as I write often. And uh, I, would, I ask myself this, am I building community with people through my generosity and by being inclusive? Am I building community with people who are not yet Christians? Do I enjoy healthy relationships with people who are not Christians? Do I love them for who they are and not for what I think they can accomplish for me? Are we mindful? Am I mindful of how my life can sometimes become so busy and I can become so preoccupied with my own world that I sometimes force the gospel to the margins because there's no time to talk about it because I'm so busy? Do I take the time to slow down and to be hospitable and to invite people in to consider faith by slowing down and spending time with them and keeping the gospel a part of the conversation. I don't know about you, but my home, our house, can, mostly because of me, become a bit of a refuge. Uh, Home sometimes feels like the only place where I can turn the switch to standby or to off. And I don't say that so you feel sorry for me. I don't have a particularly difficult life, but ask my wife and my kids about the times when I just kind of go into standby mode and shut it all down and keep everything else at bay because life can be so busy. Work can be so, so hectic sometimes. Shuttling kids here and there can be so time-consuming and our schedule and our free time so limited. The last thing we want to do is let anybody through the fortress wall of our front door. And there are days when nobody whose last name is not Wood is getting through the front door of our house. And that's not really what I think God had in mind. I mean, I feel like sometimes it might as well be an armed fortress wall. And there are those days where people who live on my side of the fortress wall, I sometimes honestly wanna set them on the outside of the fortress wall just for a little while. They would never say such a thing about me. I am a great joy to live with. Always. Not so, <laughs> but I do, th- I do know this. I do know, I believe that God intended, did not intend for our homes to be our guarded private sanctuaries, our retreats away from the world. I think he intended them for us to retreat. I think he intended them for our refuge, but I don't think it's exclusive of that. I think he intended our homes and our hospitality to spotlight and to benefit not only our inner circle and our family, not only as places where we we teach the scripture to our children and we teach them how to love Jesus, not only those things, but also places where we would invite other people into relationship, even people who don't share our faith. Maybe you don't see it that way, but I'm pretty sure that it wasn't God's intention that Christ's mission would happen only inside the walls of this building and only outside the walls of our homes. I'm confident of that. Rather, I believe this. I believe that our homes and our hospitality can be a God honoring means of changing the world if we will invite people inside. Look back at verse 8 for a second. Paul's statement there he says, We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. So, some more questions. Are we sharing and doing life with people outside of our immediate family? Have we invited any newcomers in lately? What's the context of your relationship with other people? Is it work? Is it your kids' sports team? Is it school? Is it you run into them every Tuesday as you start your day at the Joy of Coffee? I don't know. What's the context? Has faith come up in the conversation yet? If not, that's okay. But are you mindful of that? Are we living like that's the dialogue I want to have with you? There's a whole bunch of people in my life that they think my relationship with them is about a six ounce piece of vulcanized rubber because I I'm responsible for referees, for ice hockey in the lower man. They think that our relationship is about a puck. It's not. That's the context of our relationship. I value my relationship with them because I want to be an example. I want to live faith in front of them. I want to, to help them understand there's a God who loves them. What's the context of our relationship? Are we bringing up faith? Are we asking the, this is, this is important. Are we asking the Holy Spirit where our courage lacks to give us courage, to help us begin faith conversations intentionally, instead of by accident. In John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said this. He said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Jesus saying to his followers, whoever believes in me will do what I have been doing. And then he says this, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Think about that. Jesus actually said that we followers of Christ, that it would be better for us that we will do works even better than if he were to remain in his physical body presence, bodily presence on the earth. He actually said that. It's a claim that I don't know if we always take seriously. I've read John's gospel a few times in my life. I don't know that I've seriously chewed on that before, but he's actually saying that spirit-filled Christians would be greater a greater influence than his continued earthly bodily presence. It makes sense if you think about it philosophically. What Jesus is not saying, he's not saying I'm not sufficient. He's not saying that you are some, we are somehow greater than he. He's not saying that at all. He's saying a whole bunch of you affected by the message of the gospel, believing in the power of the Holy Spirit, who go out and convey that with authority are more effective than if I stay here. Because I am going to the Father. And we know why he says, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you. But you and I believing and carrying out sort of the marching orders of the gospel, sharing with other people, has a broader impact. It makes sense, logically speaking. And you would expect that a whole bunch of us believing in the gospel, hoping for other people, loving them as Paul loved the Thessalonian church, that that would yield fruit. We would expect that. I read a book that, Ben Kerlick gave me recently. Uh, It's called The Simplest Way to Change the World and it'll be available actually in the library in a couple of weeks, it was that good. Uh, Ben had a plan to get it in there and I'd I'd like to see that available to people to read. The two pastors who wrote it, a guy named Dustin Willis and Brendan Clements, they observed this. They said that Jesus' vision of the church that would change, excuse me, that would besiege the gates of hell did not consist of a group of people gathered around one anointed leader but of multiple leaders going out in the power of the spirit. And that's Jesus' point in this verse in John chapter 14, 12. It's not about you guys huddling up around me every day and hearing great teaching and the truths of God. It's about you believing it and then taking it everywhere with you. And that is exactly how the gospel became real to me in Southern Saskatchewan when a half dozen or so Christians, spirit-filled people who didn't even all know each other. I didn't tell you that at the beginning, but they didn't how they began to share their lives with me. And only after I realized the blessing of their welcoming and their hospitality was I then really interested in attending church. Because until that point, until I saw what the motivation was and I understood, it was just another thing to do, to go to church. There's a lesson there. That when we share our lives with people, we cooperate with God and we allow him to work through us And it benefits those who don't know Christ as Savior when we share our lives for that reason. But if we're going to have that kind of influence, we also need to consider what Paul writes in the next verse. In verse 9, he says this, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship as we worked day and night in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. It's important to remember at this time in Paul's ministry, he's bivocational. He is a pastor, preacher, but he is also still tent making. He's not tent making because he really enjoys it necessarily. We don't know that. We know that he is tent making to provide for himself. It's what feeds him and clothes him, because remember, back, flashback to the beginning, he doesn't want to take wages out of the church. He doesn't want the church to have to support his way of living, his traveling, his missionary journey. So he says, I make tents. I work hard day and night. I preach the good news to you by day. I make tents by night. I'm not sure if that's the exact order, but that's what he's saying. I work hard so that I can share the gospel with you and not be a burden to you. The reason's simple. It's just a deep love conviction for the Thessalonians. It's this desire that they would be strengthened and they would be encouraged and they would come to faith and they would be used by God for his glory. And then the ongoing advancement of the work as faith legacy after faith legacy is begun, that it would continue for generations, that it would go elsewhere. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, doing a transformational work first in you and me, and helping us to live that out with people. Are we doing that, Southridge? Are we doing that, church? Imagine the church where ordinary people who know what it means to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit, who seek God's presence, who ask God for wisdom, for direction, help me, Lord, pursue relationships with people Where I can honor you, where I can talk about you, where I can share with you. God, give me the the patience and the time and the wisdom to know how and when to live my faith in a way that honors Jesus. Imagine the church where the Holy Spirit moves through ordinary people like that. Imagine that we actually carry the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with us into everything we do when we go to work today. Maybe it's a job you don't enjoy. Maybe it's a person in your kid's life that is particularly challenging or difficult. God, give me the power and the humility and the strength and the wisdom to live my life, to to answer this person, to intersect my life with this life in a way that honors you. Imagine if we did that outside of these walls, outside of our homes, if we invited people into our homes in such a way that they saw that. Imagine the community that God would establish if we lived and loved in that way did Jesus love people. Do we see that when we read scripture? Did he love people? So should we, right? Did he heal those who were ill? Did he help those who were poor? Did he feed the hungry? So should we. Did he testify about God's love and his plan for redemption for mankind? Did he offer salvation to those who would believe in his name? So Should we? Did he show hospitality and kindness? Did he cross the Jordan to go into Samaria to talk to a woman who was his natural enemy by faith, to tell her about himself so that she could come to faith and her whole village could be changed? So should we. Did he offer forgiveness for sins? Did he preach about restoration? Did he forgive and say, go and sin no more? So should we. See, if we, want, if we want God's kingdom to come and people to be saved and to come to saving knowledge of Jesus, if we want that, then we have to help work at advancing the mission. We can't let the work cease. We can't let it fall to the ground. We can't let the anointed leaders, the Sunday school teachers, the pastors, the Bible study leaders, the community group leaders, we can't let the work stay with them. We have to be the church. We have to be the hands of and the feet of Christ, because the relationships we have are ours. They're ours. The privilege we have of ministering is, is given to us by God for that person. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy and others of Jesus' disciples knew to be true, and that's why they chose to live and love and serve the way they did. That's why they went to places where they had no history of family, of being, of having been. They didn't do life in these places. They went there because they felt called by God to do so. I was out with some friends a few weeks ago, and somehow during our time together, we were eating together, the four of us, and somehow during our our mealtime, the conversation about life and family and work and everything else going on suddenly shifted to church and God. And I wasn't the one who put the turn signal on. I didn't shift it. They did. One of them did. And they all know I'm a pastor. We've been doing life together for a few years now. But if you know me well, you'll know this about me. I'm not shy to share my faith. I don't back away from from sharing my faith. But I'm also not the kind of guy who, who steps in and then is just like blunt and direct and like in your face about what you need and what you need to do. I'm not that guy. I do share my faith. I will share my faith, but I'm not going to just on you. Well, one of my friends, he directed this comment to me. He actually turned and he looked at me and he said, you know, Kirk, and at that point I knew it was about me. He said, uh, I used to go to church as a kid. In fact, I went until I was a young adult. I was pretty involved in church. I had lots of Christian influences in my life and lots of Christian people around me. And my values and your values are about 98% identical. The way I live my life is very similar to how you live your life. But then he said this. Then he said, but. That changed my involvement with church, my relationship with Christians, the ones in my life because what he noticed was, increasingly so, it was incongruent between what he, w- he knew the Bible to say, what he heard preaching to say, Christians are supposed to be, not a list of rules, but how we're supposed to embody the love of Christ for others, acceptance of Christ uh, for others. And it became incongruent for him when he felt judged by Christians. He wasn't a Christian. Scripture says, don't judge the unbeliever, right? judge Christians, how are you doing at living your faith life, Kirk? Hold each other accountable, but we can't judge an unbeliever, a non-Christian by the same standard. And yet he felt judged. He talked about how there was a lack of other positive things from Christians to him in his life, things like gentleness and loving and kind. And there was a lot of rules and a lot of judgment. And it created distance in his relationship with these people. And he made it clear that his comment was not directed at me for how I've been treating him, but it made me think, it really made me think we don't always get this missional living thing right, do we? We don't always love people well. We, I, I, I sometimes hurt people. I sometimes do things, say things, react in a certain way that it can create barriers for people who are examining my life if they are comparing how I live to what I say and what Jesus says I'm supposed to be, it can create barriers and an impasse in their willingness or their ability to seek God further. If they can't see past me, they're gonna have a hard time seeing Jesus if I'm the one standing in the way saying, I'm I'm his representative if I'm not living the way he's called me to live. That's why it's so important that each of us who claims to follow him, that we live a Christ-like missional life, that we set aside our own desires. We We don't come for our own acclaim. We don't want you to revere us. We want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's what he's called all Christians to live out, all of us. And if he didn't want us active in it, hear this. If he didn't want us active in this, why are we still here? That's one of the questions I had to wrestle through. It, I, I've come to faith, Lord. Like, why am I still here? Like, he could take us to heaven if he wanted to, but we're still here. And the reason we're still here is because there's still work to be done. If you read ahead, if we, well, we will. Re- uh, reading ahead in chapter four, in verse one, chapter four, it says this. It says, we instructed you, this is Paul talking again to the Thessalonians. He says, we instructed you in how, uh, how to live in order to please God. We've told you how to please God. And then he says this, you're now living that way. Good, affirmation, right? Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. It's good, church, that you're living this way. It's good, Southridge family, that we love people. And now he asks us to do this more and more. Because here's the thing, there's a world full of people who have not yet made a faith commitment to Christ. And our work begins, you see it over the doors out there, our work begins one life at a time. That's what he's called us to. Let me pray for you. Well, Lord, this morning, uh, we tackle this difficult subject of of living a Christ-like life, of loving you and honoring you and serving you well, being the example you've called us to be so that those who are watching our lives are not impaired from seeing what it means to be in Christ, And Lord, I just, uh, I pray for strength. I pray for courage. I pray for conviction that we would continue to seek more of you in our lives. Lord, we know that with our own efforts, it's impossible to please you. But we know that with the Holy Spirit guiding our thoughts and our decisions, giving us burdens for others, we know that it is possible for us to be all that you've called us to be. So God, we confess this morning that There are people in our lives who we know need Christ. And some we don't have influence with, but some we do. So God, where there's no influence, would you grant us favor? Lord, where there is influence, would you water the ground? God, would you help us to have a faith conversation with somebody? I'm sure Lord, some of us are thinking about people right now, names that you no doubt have laid on our hearts and our minds. And so God, I pray for strength this week that we would be your representative to them. That before we leave here today and get on with our week and compartmentalize so many other things and lay them on top of all that we know we have to do and be this week for our families, our work and our interests. God, that you would continue to draw those those names to our mind. And that we would not just look for an opportunity, God, but create an opportunity. Invite somebody in. Have someone, coffee with someone, be present in someone's tragedy, in their pain, in their difficulty. Lord, how how short it would be if we thought the first exposure to the gospel should come from a speaker on a stage. Lord, you've given us opportunity to represent the gospel in their life personally. So Lord, help us do that this week. And the moments we have here to sing to listen to your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you burden us? Would you help us begin to, if we're not already, imagine together as a body of believers, what a faith legacy would look like, not just for our own children and grandchildren, our friends, our family, but for everyone we do life with. What a force we could be, Lord, if we sought your Holy Spirit's presence and power daily. Would you do that for us, God? In Jesus' name, amen.